The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Mark Miller, co-author of Culture Built My Brand, the secret to winning more customers through company culture, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Mark Miller to talk about the book he's co-authored with Ted Vaughn, Culture Built My Brand, The Secret to Winning More Customers Through Company Culture, published by Amplify. Mark Miller is the co-founder of Historic Agency, where he leads product strategy, marketing transformation, and brand. He has rebranded nearly 100 organizations and also specializes in all things strategy, including brand, product, and marketing. And interesting fact, he was once denied a passport because the U.S. State Department confused him with a fugitive named Mark Miller who was born on the same day, year, and in the same state. Mark, congratulations on Culture Built My Brand, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. And uh, yeah, Mark Miller is a very common name, apparently. It is. I looked. I looked at you know when you do when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you uh, you know not you don't just read the book. You you do the important research, like uh, looking up Mark Miller on Wikipedia and seeing all the famous people named Mark Miller. I'm sure you've met people named Mark Miller when you were growing up. But let's get back to your criminal history. Tell us about this Mark Miller who is still at large. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting story. I was going to a wedding um, in Puerto Vallarta. I needed a passport and went to apply. was denied a passport. Um, and ironically, there was a, I had an insurance bill a few months earlier that I was for broken ribs and it wasn't me. It was in California and I refuted it and just thought, oh, just common name. Turns out that there was a Mark Miller with the same name, uh, birth date, from the same state, uh, same social security number, the first three digits were the same. And he had hit somebody and killed them in a DUI hit and run, was later captured, put in the hospital and escaped to the hospital. He had broken ribs. And so they needed to verify my identity that I was not this person. And uh, that was my first encounter with finding this out. And then as I, you know, grew my career, ended up in-house at a company with offices overseas and started to travel, uh, I was detained coming back into the country, uh, which I thought was kind of ironic that I was never 
detained on my way out of the country only on the way back in was I detained by customs until they could verify my identity. So it was usually like 30 or 40 minutes. And that was an interesting experience. Uh, once traveling with my wife, she also had to live through that um, while she was pregnant. So that was, that was a fun conversation to try to wow. explain to her. And I hope that uh, that you know criminal past of yours... Uh, <laughs> Whether it's true or not, uh, I hope that I hope she finds you a little more interesting and mysterious because of all that. You know, yeah, it's it's definitely a fun story to tell. Yeah. So, how did you escape from the hospital, Mark? <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily, I was uh, in Atlanta at the time of, of when that was supposed to. Sure, you happen, were. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And then you also uh, told me before we started recording that you once were visiting the White House, and you. Reached down yeah, to pet, was, pet the Obama's dog, and the Secret Service started to come at you, and they had their yeah. hands on their weapons. Yeah, they they take protection very seriously uh, at the White House and security. So I, um, uh, I'm not famous or anything. I just <laughs> happened to get a free tour as part of this like sponsorship. Sponsorship, and um, their dog came up to me, and I, you would think I would pay attention to the news more. I should have recognized the dog. I didn't, I was just like, oh, it's a dog. And, you know, I was on my way out uh, through, you know, like the front where the chandelier is uh, on the White House. And as soon as I started petting the dog, they, you know, three guys surrounded me like out of nowhere. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, this is not going to go well. And let me so, guess, they already knew your name. <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, they, surprisingly, what I, you know, I was telling you uh, is the White House had no problem verifying my identity, which I thought was, was um, interesting that the, State Department and the White House have different resources, apparently, when it comes to information. Right. Well, well I'm glad that things are at least secure at the White House. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. very good. So, I read through the book, and uh, I just have to say one thing, that any book that mentions Taco Bell a few times gets top consideration for this little podcast. Yeah, that's okay? awesome. Just a word to the authors that, uh, you know, who are out there. And as a matter of fact, tomorrow I'm interviewing an author— he mentioned Taco Bell. So, you know, that's it's, that's pretty much the only thing I look for. It's an American staple. What can I say? <laughs> that's right. And I sometimes talk about it on the show because once an author has been on the Marketing Book Podcast three times, they are in this uh, very exclusive club called the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. And one of the things – I can't tell you all the things that are ahead once you write the next two books, Mark, <laughs> but one of the things that starts to happen is you just pull up to any Taco Bell and tell them you're – a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club, and things start happening for you. So, oh, that I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, uh, not to make this about me, but I, you know, I'm always joking about Taco Bell, but I could not remember ever having eaten there. So last Saturday morning, I went. I heard they have breakfast now. I pulled up, and no, I'm not kidding. I really did in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and I said, "Hey, I'm a I'm the host of the Marketing Book Podcast. They said, sure, that's great. The breakfast burrito is still going to be $5. So um, <laughs> I, I insisted that they take the money, though. And uh, it was quite good. So uh, shout out to the uh, the Taco Bell folks. Now, when you sent the book, it came in a really cool box. And it had uh, a very nice handwritten note from you. And it had like stickers. And it even had a little pennant in it. And the Thing is, I ended up getting a second one. So what that means to the listener is that whoever shares this interview on LinkedIn and you know tags me and tags Mark, and I see that you're getting a really great reaction, 
that box is going to be yours. I'll send it anywhere in the world. So uh, I should acknowledge that the listeners are really good about sharing this uh, when they enjoy a, a particular uh, episode. And the book is really well written, and it's uh, beautifully illustrated, and it's even printed on thick paper stock. And when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast and you read all these books, I, you notice these things. So it was kind of a nice uh, experience. So good on you. I just wanted to read a couple of things from the beginning of the book and set the stage, and then we can talk about some of these uh, key concepts. And when I say I, I liked the book, um, it really scratched an itch that I haven't had with all so many of the other books, well, to a certain extent, but I think it's a really, really important idea, and we're going to get into that. Um, I just want to read from page three. It says, no organization has failed because of its logo, but many have failed because of their internal culture. And then going on to page four, how your brand operates on the inside is more important than how it looks on the outside. Your internal culture, how your employees communicate and behave, defines your brand more than your logo or website. Your culture is your brand strategy. Out of the hundreds of rebrands we've done, those that failed all followed the same pattern. Their leaders ignored their internal culture until it sabotaged their brand. Meanwhile, our clients who sail through the rebranding process with success do so with a culture that lines up to support the brand and drive it forward. We've helped organizations of every type, nonprofits and for-profits, boutique businesses and large corporations harness their culture to build unstoppable brands. The good news is that you can do it too. And then going on to page six, your culture is the most visible, recognizable sign of your brand. And when done right, it makes a big statement about who you are and what your audience can expect from you. With a marquee culture guiding everything you and your people do, you create a standout brand that drives ahead of the competition. And finally, this book helps you build a marquee culture that showcases your brand. It gives you practical steps and hands-on tools to integrate each layer of your culture so your people can deliver on a promise that's true to who you are. Before you dive in, visit culturebuiltmybrand.com slash tools to download materials you'll use to work through the exercises at the end of each chapter. With the right culture, you'll create lift for your brand so that it draws more customers and turns them in to raving fans. And I should also add, because I kind of like books, and so do the listeners, on page eight, right off the bat, you recommend four books about healthy culture. Now, your book is about how to align your culture with your brand. These books are about, you know, how to how to get a more healthy culture. And they are, and I'm going to include links to these books on the, this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, Organizational Culture and Leadership by Edgar H. Schein, Brave New Work by Aaron Dignam, and the Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. And some authors have even um, mentioned those uh, in their interviews. So I wanted to go to page 14 and ask you to explain what Peter Drucker meant when he famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, that's uh, we've probably all have heard that if you're in marketing or business or leadership. Uh, but 
we actually ex- experienced it, which is part of why we wrote this book, but the idea that uh, the way your people behave is ultimately going to supersede any strategy that you might have that could you know, move your organization forward or might be the great next thing or, hey, we want to reorg and we think this will be great, new product, whatever it is, the culture, the the way people behave, the expectations, the unspoken rules, the stories, all of that stuff will supersede strategy and, you know, eat it, it will destroy it, it will make it really difficult to implement. Um, and, you know, we saw that time and time again, not only with strategy, but with brand. And that's kind of um, how we got to the, the point of the book. So are there some popular examples that might not be in the book about a company that may have had a good strategy, but their culture just destroyed everything like poison? Um, yeah. I mean, there's here's some recent ones that I think are trying to be saved from the poison and it's the jury's probably still out. Um, but Uber is a good example of a culture that, you know, rising star, uh, we all use it. Uh, but it became so toxic that the founder was, you know, removed basically, um, mm-hmm. a new person was brought in to, to try to change that culture. Um, Zenefits is another recent example, um, where new leadership was brought in. Um, and, um, so those are those are are some examples of of people trying to fix that. Um, uh, other examples um, of where it just kind of goes completely south, uh, I think is is Kodak is a good example, uh, and we probably all remember Kodak. Um, the The funny thing is Kodak actually invented digital photography, um, <laughs> but was so so consumed about making money off of the the printing and film and development and how, how, how good the margins were, they couldn't, you know, the, the culture didn't allow for them to, um, uh, cannibalize, you know, have their own products, cannibalize their existing products. And what ended up happening is, you know, a new industry was developed and competitors created products that cannibalized their, um, their entire company. Yeah. The thing that's even more ironic is not only did they develop digital photography, but they even had the research that showed what their runtime was, like how long they were going to be in business before digital photography took over the the printing side and all that stuff. And and they just their culture just wouldn't allow them to make the change that was necessary. Yeah. So and we'll t- we may talk about Kodak again. I want to mention there was a book on the show back in 2018 by Alan Adamson called Shift Ahead. And Kodak is mentioned quite a bit in a number of books. That was the best, most extensive explanation and description of why that happened at Kodak. I mean, it's, it's easy for a lot of people to say, oh, you know, they invented it. Not that you're saying it, but uh, but it, but it was really really complicated as to why that happened, and I thought yeah. that uh, his book did a masterful job of explaining uh, w- why it happened. It's just like oh, I could see that they hit the iceberg, and then it just was very slow to to start sinking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting. Um, there was an interesting headline here, and I want you to explain as it relates to culture what you mean when you say why solving for symptoms misses the problem. Yeah, so we generally, when we get engaged with a, a client, it's around a symptom, right? Um, the website doesn't work. 
Um, <laughs> this product doesn't resonate with the market, so let's throw more money at marketing it. Or our competition um, did something. <laughs> yeah, so let's respond that way. We, we, we've got a lot of those um, over COVID. And and so those are symptoms, right, of marketing. And all the no matter where you are, what size organization you work with or business or what role you play, you've probably seen that, right? Where we, you know, marketing on a bad idea or bad product is just gasoline to a fire that's going to burn your house down. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we say, you know, that's the symptom. The real root problem is your culture, right? What is the thing that is hindering the website from working? Um, again, most of our work is with organizations in transition or in, in um, going through change. And they're, and in those modes, there's generally a culture issue, which is why something isn't working. And that's what we want to get at. You know, when the brand isn't embedded into the organization, it's something that marketing does or something somebody does in this closet over here, or we just outsource that. It's not top of mind of the senior leadership or middle management. It doesn't permeate the organization. The culture will do what the culture does. And you'll, you'll see that it, People, you know, will make decisions. Um, culture dictates, right? Who you hire, what you budget for, um, how people operate, what ideas get picked over other ideas. And all that eventually kind of trickles out to your uh, customer. Mm-hmm. And it may work or may not work, uh, depending on what that culture is kind of dictating is important. Right. I love it in the book where you you write that you, you have a culture, <laughs> Whether you're intentional right. about it or not, it's you know nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah. It also, the reason that one of the reasons this book uh, so appealed to me is that I, I this may not this may be a confusing analogy, but I've used it in the past. It's like marketing has gone from plastic surgery to internal medicine. In other words, it's so much more now. I think about how you run your company. <laughs> than it is about what yeah. you say about yourself. And it has very much to do with the kinds of people you hire and all that sort of thing. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. In your experience, why is it that culture is ignored? Is it sort of like an issue of trying to explain water to a fish or is it just too uh just not well understood? Yeah, I mean I I we I think we even use that example in the book, the the water and fish analogy. But it also... See, it's already seeped into my subconscious. I right, realize. right. There's... there's um, we also tend to see that uh, creating cultural change is, is very, very difficult um, and requires vulnerability and self-reflection. And those are things that I think in American culture, um, especially in business, we want to keep growing. We want to... We want... We have kind of this uh, imposter syndrome and we don't want to be vulnerable. And so we take the next best route, which is let's just put lipstick on a pig. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so we'll feel like we're taking action. Right. We feel like we're doing something, but we're, it's, again, we're just addressing, like you said, it's plastic surgery. It's not internal medicine. It's not preventative care, right? It's, it's just this thing on the, that we're going to do at the, at the end and hope that it, it makes everything look good. <laughs> And the other the other part is too is that a lot of times, um, especially during the very beginning of COVID, we had clients who were like you know everyone's freaking out. We we don't know what's going to happen, um, and they didn't want to invest in in their culture because there's so many other things that are important, 
right? Mm -hmm. And fast forward, we find ourselves at the time of this recording in the middle of the great resignation. Now, the companies who invested in their culture during COVID and said, hey, we're going to double down. We're going to focus. We, we still may have to cut people, but we're going to live by our values. A great example of that was Airbnb. And we're going to stay true to those values or what we call principles. And you know, now in the middle of the time that we find ourselves in the labor market, those companies are growing and attracting talent while the other ones who didn't focus on culture are losing talent and fast. Mm -hmm. So I'm an agency guy. You're an agency guy, right? Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, there was a quote on page 22 that I, I felt very strongly about. I agreed with it completely. And I feel that I must restate it for the listeners. You write, any marketing agency worth its salt can design a beautiful website, a stunning logo, and an engaging advertising campaign. But these one-time efforts don't create big lift for your brand. To awaken your audience to your purpose, you need the strength of an internally aligned culture that helps your people showcase your brand, shapes how they operate on the inside, and powers results on the outside. So one of the things I wanted to ask about was about trust. You have a very interesting description of uh, two types of trust. Can you explain what you mean when you write that trust has two sides, relational and functional? Yeah, I think um, we kind of encounter this working with nonprofits a lot, and obviously this transcends to every business type and size, but uh, the two sides of trust, uh, relational trust and functional trust. Uh, relational trust is the, you know, I trust Douglas as a person that um, he's he's nice. He likes Taco Bell. I like Taco Bell. We can go to Taco Bell together. But there's another level of trust, which is functional trust is, you know, he going to be able, is Douglas able to produce a podcast and, re and record it correctly? Uh, and, so we might like somebody a lot, which we find in the non nonprofit space or in some corporations that still operate in the kind of the relational good old boys club, right? I, I can go have drinks with this guy. And so that's why we're in the same leadership roles together or whatnot. But then there's the, the can they actually execute their job? And, and when we focus too much on one or the other, the organization goes sideways, right? If you focus too much on functional trust, there's the culture kind of goes stale and you find yourself again, like where we are now with the great resignation, people not knowing why they're staying other than for a paycheck. But on the flip side, if you're focused mainly on relationship, things don't get done, right? You might like somebody, they're a great person. Again, in the nonprofit space, what we saw was uh, people really care about this cause. They're really passionate about homelessness or mm -hmm. adoption. They're all great causes. Care. Yeah. They're great causes. But if you can't write copy for a Facebook ad and that's your job, um, it doesn't matter how much you care about uh, homelessness. If you can't raise the money to, to impact change because your ads don't work, right? Then you're not able to do your job. And so organizations, depending on, you know, their history and their culture, tend to favor one of those types of trusts over the other. And it's about balance um, to understand that, to create a healthy culture that can then embrace the brand and, and help grow it. Mm, okay. So let's move on. And let me ask you about another excerpt from the book that I just thought was very interesting. And it might be, it might appear subtle, but you write that, you know, many people think that 
brand is simply a matter of having a logo and a website. <clears throat> it's not, folks. But you, you don't have a brand. You are a brand. What do you mean there? Yeah, I think um, Jeff Bezos' quote, you know, your brand is about is what people say when you leave the room, um, kind of hints at that. Or, or Marty Neumeier, you know, a similar um, kind of philosophy. But what we go a little bit more deeper in saying that, that yes, what people think about you is your brand, but the reason they think about you a specific way is because of who you are and kind of what you're doing as a, as a person or organization that the people make up. And a great example of this that everyone knows is Patagonia, right? Patagonia operates and lives by a set of values or principles um, that dictate how they take care of their staff, what they're willing to do or not willing to do, um, their investment into the environment, the way their products are made, the services they offer to customers like product repair. That is all who they are. And mm -hmm. that's coming out. I think where, you know, the the darling new startup of the mortgage industry better, right? Um, they laid off a bunch of people over Zoom, created, you know, this oh, that's right. felt unauthentic, right? You know, kind of, well, I cry every time I do this. I had to do it one another time in my career, the CEO says. And while at the same time giving bonuses to his leadership, and only, the reason they're doing it is so that they can um, go public and make the books look better and, and cut out labor, right? And so they're operating really based on their values, right? But eventually that leaks out and it affects the brand. Am I going to get a mortgage? Do, do I want a mortgage company who's willing to cut out people to make more money? that doesn't seem like a mortgage company I want to trust 30 for 30 years or 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it is who you are and eventually it all comes out. It does, doesn't it? Just yeah. like you're talking about with uh, Uber. The other thing that that brought to mind for me was this idea of why I don't have that many books about brands on the show. And that's because I've seen too many books that more or less say that your brand is something that your marketing department creates and can control. That, that's, and I think that's a hangover from, you know, the industrial revolution or, or, or right. whatever. It's just the it's ad agency days, the Mad Men days. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was actually my background, you know, having worked mm -hmm. at these uh, New York agencies and all that sort of thing. And it, yes, it was just like the TV show Mad Men. Mm -hmm. Except that what, what was different when I was there is we didn't have all the smoking and drinking and sex. But otherwise, the show was, it was just like the show, okay? Yeah. Uh, and our ties were slightly wider. So <laughs> let's go on and talk about, just briefly, about the five pillars of brand that you present on page 35, which actually, it follows on this idea of that you don't have a brand, you are a brand. Can you talk about the the five elements of brand, because again, back to some of the things we've talked about, I think most people think of it as identity and that's yeah. a very small part of it. Correct. Yeah. So the way we see at Historic Agency um, brand is in what we call five pillars, culture, which is who you are. So that's kind of what the book is about. Um, two, story, which is what you say. That's kind of the, the messaging. Um, three, product or service. So that's what you do. Uh, fourth is experience. So that's how you feel, the interactions, the touch points. Um, and then how the finally, customer feels. Correct, right? How mm -hmm. the customer feels. Yeah. Um, 
And then number five is identity, which is your logo, website, all the the aesthetic, the the you know physical manifestations, if you will, or representations of the brand. And what's interesting in our approach is, you know, audience is important, but what we found is over time, audiences can change, and their tastes change. Um, again, going back to why we think culture is important is millennials in generation Z are, are making purchasing decisions based on how a company behaves, how it treats its employees, its supply chain, its record on climate or other things. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so audiences shift. So these five pillars are kind of the things that, you know, you, we need to have clearly defined and understand as an organization in, in an entire organization, not just three people in marketing or what, what have you. Um, so that the culture, the brand, the products, the service, like everything is working in tandem to provide a promise and deliver on that promise to the customer. Yes. And you go on to write, outdated marketing tends to focus exclusively on the pillar of identity. It invests in advertising, websites, and social media while neglecting the other dimensions of brand. But out of all five pillars, culture most determines and sustains success. So I want to read from another section on the very next page and ask you to uh, talk about this. You write that you and Ted have helped several businesses and nonprofits recover their brand after they paid buckets of money to someone who built them a misaligned identity. Typically, these organizations ended up receiving a stunning logo (laughs) and an impressive website, but these visual elements didn't match how they operated or what they delivered. Eventually, leaders realized they had a bigger problem on their hands, a promise their brand couldn't execute, which widened the brand gaps and caused customers to lose confidence. Can you talk more about this concept of brand gaps? Yeah, um, there's a there's a great you know book brand gap by Marty Newmeyer that goes into detail about what that is. But typically, what we see um, is that an organization, right, great website, um, but unlike tech startups in Silicon Valley, which are really focused on user experience, right, because they have they're kind of birthed out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of legacy companies don't think about that, and so the the you know, I could have a great website, I can go to a retail location or buy a product or engage in a service. And the onboarding experience is horrible. Um, customer support is horrible. Um, you know, all these things are misaligned or maybe not just, maybe they're not horrible. Maybe they're just not meeting customer expectations. Or, I mean, I remember one organization, huge international company, um, it was a nonprofit recruit volunteers, um, but the interesting thing is if you wanted to, you know, go overseas and, and you know, do relief work or whatever, uh, their application process was still on paper. You had to download the application and then fax it in. And, you know, they were trying to recruit people, you know, going, doing gap year, right, or coming out of college. So, you, you know, people 18 to 27, maybe 25. And I was like, you know that, these people don't even have printers, right? Like, and they couldn't figure out why, like there was a sharp decline, you know, um, <clears throat> over the past eight years or 10 years or whatever it was in people returning applications, um, in that there, you know, people had to call and walk them through the process on the phone and they didn't understand why. And it's like, 
you're not, you're not using design thinking. You're not have empathy for the person you're trying to reach. You know, who, what 18 year old has a printer and knows what a fax is, right? Like kids these days. I know, right. (laughs) Oh, it's true. It's so true. So I mentioned earlier when I was reading some of the excerpts from the beginning of the book about marquee culture. Explain what a marquee culture is. That seemed to be the backbone of the book and what your, perhaps what your, your agency offers. Yeah. So marquee culture is our term to describe the type of culture that is going to attract talent um, and customers, right? So again, Patagonia would be a great example of a marquee culture, um, Netflix, Apple, but we, we didn't want to just do research on big companies that everyone writes books about. So in our book, we also um, talk to small businesses uh, across the country in different areas of service and product. And in our research, we found that, you know, what makes up a marquee culture that these, these companies that had these amazing brands that were, that could easily recruit talent and had customers lining up uh, for their products and services had kind of this, we're doing the six same things. And um, so we turned those um, six things into uh, what we call layers of marquee culture. So marquee culture being the, like a sign, right? It's the thing that draws people to your brand. And the layers are the things that when you start doing them in conjunction with each other, they create this um, this effect that uh, is a force multiplier effect that you just keep you know, able to move and grow and engage at a faster rate because everything is kind of working together. Yeah, so there's yeah. some real lift, serious lift. Yeah. 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 Well, so in our remaining time, can we? Can I ask you some questions about these these sure. different elements? They're all very interesting. Some of them were quite surprising, but then I, as I read each chapter, I thought, oh, of course. <laughs> how did they figure that out? So let's go to lots the, of interviews. That's how we figure. Yeah, it out. it's like a. I'll hear about some medical advance, and somebody, you know, some people have different reactions to it. And all I can think is, who figured that out? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So uh, anyway, the first one is uh, principles. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to read from uh, one page and ask you to explain. You write, this is page 51, you write, your people don't need aspirational values that point to abstract outcomes. They need principles modeled by their leaders and tied to everyday behaviors that reflect the brand and support its success. So explain what you mean by, you know, the different, these are terms that often misunderstood, principles, values, and so forth, but explain what you mean, because that really is the crux of this whole thing. Yeah, I hate values, which sounds like I'm a horrible person and, and a sociopath. But well, what I mean, you did escape that. from the hospital, and <laughs> That's you're right. still on the run. So, um, what I mean by um, that is, in, in the book, we talk about Enron. So, for those of you that are listening and old enough, there was this big energy conglomerate uh, finance company called Enron. Yep, um, which had the value of integrity. Um, and I think it was even on their, on in the lobby. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, they, that was plastered on the wall of its lobby, and so people know they crashed and burned, and their officers were imprisoned. Yeah, their executive team, <laughs> almost all of them, went to jail. I think one guy who uh, I think was questioned as a suspect for murder in the whole thing too, like just disappeared off the face of the earth. So like, it, it, but his name wasn't Mark hard. Miller. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was, it was different. <laughs> Uh, different person, um, but it it is a ex- 
you know, that is the example of, um, and we go on and McKinsey has research. Most of your employees, when you say values like integrity or honor or <laughs> other things, you know, they don't really know what that, like what that means. And some of them are like integrity is like a pay to play or not a pay to play, but, a um, integrity would be the, the like minimum requirement, right? No one is going to go to a company and think, oh, they're going to rip me off. So I'm going to use them, right? They assume that you're not going to rip them off, that you are going to have some <laughs> level of integrity. Right. So you're like, none of the values, one, are clear for employees to understand how does it affect my job. And two, they're usually not differentiated against other competitors. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming integrity is in probably 35% of the values of the top you know, fortune 500 companies in the United States. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, probably all of them don't have it to some extent. So what is, uh, so we define, but, but also I don't think the, every employee that walked by that lobby, they didn't know what it is they were supposed to do. Right. They, so a lot of times, um, uh, integrity or, uh, I'm trying to think of another one, um, customer focus or, customer um, focus, right. And, and customer focus is a great one because they'll say, Oh, we're customer focus. But then you get in there and you realize they don't practice design thinking. They've haven't had a focus group. They don't, you know, and you're like, what is, where does that actually come from? And it's, it becomes a marketing term mm-hmm. right? they can put on their website. Um, and, but people don't know how to operate that. And surprisingly, um, what we found too in organizations um, that weren't great at this and ones that were is they also f- they also make budget decisions based off of these values, right? So um, uh, Linda Rutherford, who was kind uh, 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 kindly uh, wrote the forward for the book, who's the chief communications officer at Southwest Airlines, they have a large budget for taking care of their people and for culture and. For a publicly traded company, they they spend quite a bit of money and time focused on on their culture because they believe that it's a differentiator and it's one of the things that they value is their culture. Um, Patagonia is this the same way. They showcase their value for caring for their people by having in two on-site daycare centers for people who are coming back to work and and uh, it's sub, it's not free. It's subsidized heavily, but it's you know there's some of the best schools in Ventura County and they're owned and run and operated, you know, by Patagonia for their employees, which says something. Um, so live those out. And again, employees don't know when it's integrity or cut, like, so what we say is principles, um, how in, in write a sentence. And this, this is a, a good takeaway today for your listeners. If you have values, great, write them out in a sentence that tells your employee how they're supposed to behave day to day. And you just by doing that and then in permitting that through the organization, you will see a shift in your culture because people will have now a clear understanding of what they're supposed to be doing versus, you know, I want to honor you. Well, what does that mean? Do I, <laughs> you know, do I sounds nice. at your feet? You yeah. Know? Like what? Yeah. Right. Like that sounds good. Lift, lift up, carry you around on your chair throughout mm-hmm. the, halls or that's what my employees do yeah (laughs) and so you say at the end of the day employees need behavior-based principles that give them a crystal clear understanding of how to behave to elevate the brand and differentiate it from the competition i don't believe this was in the book but i can i can recall years ago hearing some story about disney where rather than saying 
take care of the customers or whatever. One of the things that they told them was no chipped paint. Mm-hmm. And that was the straw that stirred the drink, meaning it, it had to do with safety. It had to do with presentation. <laughs> it, was, it was something that people understood. And right. in order to not have chipped paint on rides or whatever, uh, a number of things values had to be uh used and and uh you know exemplified in their in their daily uh yeah tasks. one one silicon valley client of ours um had a value of servant leadership but then wrote out what that meant and the the example they gave is if you're traveling and you're the most senior person in your group and you get upgraded you give your first class seat to the least senior person in your group oh yes yes and that made it real clear what that meant, right? Um, so, yeah, let's go to the next one, which is architecture. And I, I have a feeling with people only heard that they would think, oh, it's how all the logos are organized. You know, you've heard <laughs> yeah, the term brand, brand architecture. Or- yeah, yeah, brand architecture. Yeah. Um, but I want to quote from uh, page seventy-five. You write, organizations invest time and money into designing simple, intuitive systems for their customers. They ruthlessly the good ones do. They ruthlessly eliminate clutter from the customer experience, but rarely do they do the same internally for their own employees. So can you explain how companies' systems and structures are wasting their employees' time and preventing them from doing their best work? Yeah, so um, we use the term architecture, uh, you know, being from uh, an agency in Arizona, we use Frank Lloyd Wright analogy in this, but um, every house has the, like the plumbing, HVAC, the electric, you know, all the stuff that makes the house work, but you actually don't see it, right? You just see the endpoint, the nice light fixture or, or whatever it might be. And every, every organization is the same way. We have systems that our employees have to use, but when they're, they don't reflect the, the principles of your brand, it, it starts to create tension with the employees, right? Because you start living these two lives. I have to make the user experience or the customer experience this amazing thing. And then I have to submit an expense rec- report, which takes four hours, has to get approval between two people. And somehow I still don't get my reimbursements done correctly. And I, I'm out 40 bucks. And, you know, that's an extreme case, but in a, a true one, we were working with an organization and they didn't understand why they couldn't, get their staff to be more innovative when they had been known for being an innovative company. And it turned out like most of the cultural things were, were dictated by accounting because accounting wanted these reports and they wanted this done this way. And they wanted this to be done this way instead of looking back and saying, Hey, our, these are our values. So what kind of systems can we put in place that reflect these values? And, and so that, and the key here is that you're, you want your employees to be experiencing the brand that you want your customers to experience throughout the day as much as possible, right? And so now there's always going to be things you have to do that, you know, you don't like doing in business, but most of the companies we've seen, they're so far, like, you know, a hundred miles away from being even close to reflecting what their brand is internally mm-hmm. with their systems. Um, and at, at our agency, we use a specific corporate card. Um, and the reason is when you take make a purchase, it sends you a text message. It asks you to take a photo of the receipt and then asks you to what it was for. And that automatically gets added to your statement and your expense report automatically. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, 
<laughs> you know, that I just coming from, you know, a corporate background, uh, I just hate having to do all these hoops, right. To track things down. And everyone does it on time because you do it in real time. And that aligns with our value of, uh, or principle of being people centered. Yes. That was a great example. You write, organizations tend to get complex because they don't address people issues. Instead of holding people accountable, they create systems and structures to limit and micromanage employees' behavior. And you also write, it's easier to constrain people with red tape than deal with their issues directly. And there was... Sorry, I read all these books. There was another book that talks in great depth about just this one thing called The Ministry of Common Sense by Martin Lindstrom. Brilliant book, very funny. And he even had a program where you buy the book, you could buy two books, and they send you one, and then they will anonymously send one to your CEO. (laughs) I thought that was great. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And actually, we mentioned Kodak in this same chapter. You write, Kodak's epic demise has often been blamed on its inability to keep pace with digital technology, but we see it as a failure of their culture, which blocked the decision-making processes that could have led to greater innovation. I mean, they weren't stupid people. They were, right. you know, very innovative, and it was quite a uh, an enormous co- uh, company. And I can remember one of my first jobs in advertising. I was at the agency that had the Kodak account, and that was a right. really big deal. So let's talk about rituals. What are they, and and how can they be powerfully harnessed? And would an example of a ritual be like uh, human sacrifice? Yeah. Well, uh, they can't be. Uh, we've seen companies that try to do that uh, with the way they treat people, uh, but. <laughs> But what we found was, again, going researching all these companies, big and small, um, was that there were these moments that the employees were able to experience the brand or their values or principles um, through a ritual that was life-giving to the staff. And sometimes they were bottom-up, sometimes they were top-down, but it was a way to create energy and joy around the brand and experience that. So in the the book, we give the most fun example of this, which is NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Uh, you can uh, Google this, but they have a the NASA. If you Google NASA pumpkin carving contest, you will see these amazing, you know, drastically over engineered by rocket scientists because that's what who works there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what makes them good, <laughs> right? Uh, um, and. It's not funded by the federal government here in the United States. So anyone in the United States who might want to get picky about that. It's all, you know, grassroots. They have to buy the supplies. They do it on their lunch hour. And they'll, you know, there's teams and they go home at night and they plan. And, and you know, some of them are actual rockets that take off. And some are elaborate set pieces of the moon landing being filmed. Uh, but what it does is it teaches them how to be creative in their engineering and it, it celebrates people, there's a winner. Um, but where that comes into, you may ask, well, why is that important for in- engineers? Well, when you're in space and something breaks, there's not a lot of options on how to fix it. And so creativity is really, really important to be able to solve engineering problems with limited resources. And mm-hmm. this is a, that was a great way. Uh, it's an annual ritual that they do that expresses that part of their brand. Um, and the value or the behaviors they want their engineers to do. And it, again, it's supported by leadership, but funded completely outside of their budget. Yes. And uh, to 
add a, a point to what you just mentioned. People should watch the 1995 film Apollo 13 that had uh, Tom yeah. Hanks and Gary Sinise and all these other guys, and it was really exactly what you're talking about. It showed how creative they were because they were in outer space. They didn't have a whole right. lot of options after that. But just one other question about the, the rituals. You write that you've worked with deeply invested, well-intentioned leaders who mistake <laughs> routines for rituals. So what's the difference between a routine and a, a ritual, and why is that important? Yeah, so if you have to mandate everyone show up to your Christmas party, it's not a Christmas party. <laughs> so uh, Yeah, and I've worked at that company, I think, at <laughs> right, one point. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So um, we create these routines where um, uh, that, hey, we think we're going to have this fun time. Like, again... Um, have fun, damn it! Yeah, right. We worked with this one company who had a Christmas party and they, um, you know, they brought us in because they were having financial trouble. We were helping them with marketing and revenue goals and stuff like that. And someone told me about this where it was like, yeah, um, they they can't afford uh, like a nice meal and party. And so we, they do like Boston Market, which I didn't even think was still around, uh, meal uh, like, you know, or KFC and that's what people eat. And I was like, and you said, have really you guys depressing. not heard of Taco Bell? <laughs> right. I was like, that's really depressing. I was like, why don't you make it a potluck, but add a fun component, which would be, we're going to do a dessert competition. Um, and then whoever wins that competition gets a rockstar parking s- space. We'll put a plaque up with their name, which doesn't cost that much money, uh-huh. and they get it for the whole year until the next time somebody uh, does a uh, you know a dessert that wins. And um, so th- that was our recommendation, um, just from you know being around. And then we made you know we designed the plaque for them, and then they did that, and it it's become a ritual for. I mean, that, gosh, that was seven years ago. I think one person won it three years in a row. Um, and then they had to they had to put in rules so that like uh, you could only have it for two years in a row. Oh, term limits like the U.S. Term, presidency, term yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But people got into it. Like um, I remember we one year we were invited, and um, I mean people were lobbying for their desserts, um, and they like they just got they were just extreme, you know, like extreme baking or one of those shows on on Netflix or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, people got into it, and it changed, you know the mood from like, oh, we have to eat this like cold, like f- processed turkey with gravy to, yeah, we all have to chip in, but it's way more fun. And we, we created this, you know, this experience that everyone kind of actually looks forward to, which I thought, um, obviously it's, it's a better ritual. And so, you know, well, now don't the rituals need to come uh, kind of bubble up as well as come from on high? Yeah, we, we, we see the um, more successful brands are the ones where the employees get it, you know, for lack of a better term. And then they, they want to come up with something Uh uh, because they, they have ownership in the brand. And so at our company um, we have half our team is remote. The other half is here in the the Phoenix office. And so with uh, someone was like, you know um, we have a, a principle of, being the fun. So we, we don't want to be the cruise ship director who's dictating, we're going to go <laughs> do a company picnic now, or we're going to do zoom happy hour today. We want people to own it. And so he's like, 
hey, I had this fun idea. What if everyone submitted a album, you know, one employee, one week we listen to it and then the following week we review it and we're like, that way we can get to know people that aren't in the office and we can get to know each other a little bit better. And I was like, that's great. We'll make time for that in our staff meeting every week um, and support you in that, right? And so we have, we use Slack for team communication. So there's a Slack channel for music club and there's the rules, you know, pretty much no country, everything else is fine. And uh, people- Haters. (laughs) I know, right? People, you know, then there's, you know, it's in alphabetical order and each person posts uh, with a submission and why this album is important to them. And people comment on it. And it's a way to get to learn about each other. And it's super fun. Some people have really interesting music tastes. I'll just say that. Uh, like like they need help or an intervention or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, sometimes. I mean, it's just you know, we we it's it's an interesting span from like right now. This week is Kid A by Radiohead. Um, I did a Rick Ansley album last week just because I forgot it was my week, and so I just decided to Rickroll everybody. Uh-huh. And then the previous week was like I think metal. Someone posted like a <laughs> metal band. So. Yeah. It's it's all over the map, but it's a fun way for people to get to know each other. Well, now I don't want to tell an organizational culture expert, you know, how to develop the culture in his own organization, but just an idea. And I don't need a response. <laughs> Have a marketing book podcast uh, listening session each week. It comes out on Friday. Everybody brings their own lunch. Just just put that out there, and you know, if you do that, uh, and when you do the second edition of the book, you know, think about including that. So um, yeah. Now the next chapter is on lore. L-O-R-E. This was the most surprising for me, and it also seems like the most difficult thing for a culture to harness, because you write that you can't control the stories that become your lore. So explain explain this concept of lore. Yeah, so lore is the stories that, um, we like the canon of stories that happen about your company, right? Good or bad, they're the... They're the um, the water cooler talk, you know, we, there's no really water cooler in the, air, in the age of COVID, but they're the things that people are sending across on Slack and still sharing. Um, and they are hard because most parts, again, of branding aren't necessarily always things that you control. They're only things that you can influence, right? And so what we found was um, the brands that had marquee culture, the ones that were, again, attracting talent and customers ha- had this innate ability to capture their lore and influence it for the positive. And so part of that is as leaders, actually just being good leaders and, and building a bridge to those with the least power in your organization, your employees or whoever, and understanding what are the stories that you're not hearing. Um, my co-author, Ted, he talks about, uh, he was hired at a, at a company and um, the CFO was like, oh, um, just remember, you're just one, you know, uh, plane ride away from losing your job. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, the CEO has this tendency to, when he's on a plane sitting next to somebody and he meets that person and that person claims to do someone's job better than somebody here, he just hires them on the spot and fires the other person like on the plane. (laughs) Is it Dr. Evil? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I was like, oh my gosh. And um, the funny thing is my co-author, Ted, he went to his boss and was like, have you actually heard this story? And he was concerned because that's kind of how he got hired was, <laughs> was meeting him on the plane. And so he was like, oh, you know, that's happened one other time, but that was like six years ago. And Ted's like, well, you know, 
people keep telling this story. And he's like, so he didn't even know and was so disconnected from the culture of his organization that he didn't really realize this, this story was bubbling up. And so as leaders, we need to make inroads, ask questions, you know, if you do one-on-ones, you know, ask questions about what people are hearing and try to create a safe place where, you know, you let people give you negative feedback or critical feedback on the way you lead. And then they'll eventually start sharing those bad stories real quick. On negative lore, when you find out what it is, you also want to drag it into the daylight and bring clarity. Mm. So one of the things, and again, part of this is our, this book is our own journey as an agency. We grew really fast. Um, and as, as a partner, I wanted to, you know, let other people lead and, and, and then COVID hit and we ran into this this situation where I woke up one day and I couldn't make the decisions necessary and the culture had moved away too far, you know, got away from me too fast that it was a completely different place. And, and I didn't even want to work there really. And so we had to make some changes because of that. And, um, we woke up, you know, I will fast forward. We have great team, new staff culture is great. And there's these rumors of what happened, you know, a couple of years ago with changing people out and what did that, and, and then people got nervous, like, is that going to happen again? And so I brought it into the daylight and explained to our team, Hey, this was a good thing. And this is why it was a good thing. Was it painful? Absolutely. But it was a good thing to get us to where we're at. And all of you represent these principles or these values, which is why we love this team. Right. And, and just bring it in the daylight. It still is going to exist, mm-hmm. but now, the, all the new staff know why that those transitions happened. On the good side of lore, um, which is the fun part, we all, we found that usually um, for tech companies or startups, there was a founder story that was really remarkable that they turned into lore and and made canon and and even processed or made it part of the onboarding process. So um, Patagonia again is an example of. Um, Yvonne Chouinard used to, uh, he's retired now, but he, when he was still part of the company, he, the founder, he would bring people in and show them how to make pitons, which are these little things that go into the mountain, I guess, when you rock climb, I'm not a rock climber, but apparently it was like one of the first people to make reusable pitons that you can shove into rock and, and take out. And so all new employees would learn how to actually make that. Cause that's where the company started and, and showing them the, the craftsmanship um, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, s- small companies, um, again, there was a kind of a technology firm that we referenced in the book, um, as a consulting firm and design and installation for big AV stuff, like think theme parks, like Disney and, um, or churches or sports arenas or whatever, um, that kind of s- scale. And one of the, the positive lures that they tell is this, this story about, trying to find the best solutions. And, and so their values is always been treating people um, with respect and, and kindness and putting relationships first. And so they just had this huge network of relationships and one client came to them and wanted to do something that was really radical. And so they made some phone calls and found out the way to what they wanted to do required at the time, a camera that only NASA had, cause it was a prototype mm-hmm. um, and a, projector that was a prototype from a projection company. Um, and so they were able to get 
NASA to release the camera for 48 hours. Well, they had like four of them, I think. And they said, yeah, you can, <laughs> yeah, it, right, you can borrow right. it or rent it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they borrowed it. And, and that, so that's their story in the book is we, we, you know, we tell that story of just, again, it's kind of an origin story of, of the value of why treating people matter and being creative in their engineering and looking for solutions that are outside of the box. And so that story kind of solidifies those two things and they tell that over and over again to the employees. Um, and, and it's built the company to the point where they, um, well, we're under non-disclosure, but they have like amazing other stories that are crazier, oh. uh, now, but so lore can really position your people to live out those values and then, um, in doing so grow your company. Yes. Well, let's go to the last two vocabulary. When I first saw the table of contents, I thought, boy, what do they mean there? And you write, if you don't have vocabulary, giving your team concrete direction for how to behave and do their work, you're missing out on a powerful builder of culture. How so? Having specific words with specific definitions that only your team knows does a a few things. One, it points them back to those principles values, uh, the brand that you want to build. And two, it makes them kind of feel like uh, insiders a little bit. And so uh, having vocabulary, now we've worked with organizations where like they hand us a a three ring binder of like all the abbreviations of everything in their industry. Right. And we should also clarify that we're not talking about jargon, folks. Right. So (laughs) we're not talking about jargon. Um, You know, for our healthcare clients, we love you, but you guys got a lot of specific terms that I have no idea what they mean. Um, but what we're talking about is to for your brand, right? So in the, in the example of the book, we, we use Netflix, which has a ton of these terms um, because they really want people to understand the uniqueness of their culture and their brand. And so uh, one is called sunshining. And that is where when you make a mistake, it's your job to share your failure with your team and, learn, share your learnings from that. And the point of that isn't to uh, say, oh, look, Mark failed at something. We want to, we want to drag him out and, and make fun of him. Well, and the human sacrifice. Right. The human sacrifice. It's not for human sacrifice. It's for, uh, it's for letting the team learn from your failure so that, so that we're not making the same failure again and we can keep innovating. And failure is going to happen for a company that has to innovate to stay ahead of, of bigger, more dominant players. Um, and so that's a that's a great example. And in their case, uh, Reed Hastings made the biggest mistake out of probably all the employees when he tried to split the company into two. So mm-hmm. th- that's a that's a good example. Um, and so each, you know, it, it's a very simple idea, but we noticed, you know, all these great brands had these these terms that, again, it wasn't jargon, it wasn't abbreviation or industry terms. Um, it was a term that pointed back to a specific principle around their brand. Mm-hmm. And and that made it easy for employees to live out those principles um, and point in, and keep the brand top of mind as they execute their work. Right. And this doesn't actually cost a lot. No, it, it's free. It's amazing. <laughs> Just the time and the brain power, I suppose. Yeah. Well, let's right. talk about the last one, and I know this is going to disappoint people, but it's not logos and color schemes. Um, oh, no. In fact, they're, they're, it's not there. I'm, I'm sorry to break yeah. it to everybody. The last one, again, uh, a head scratcher initially was the artifacts. Artifacts. You write, 
Artifacts occupy the level of culture nearest to the surface. As the topmost layer of your culture, they reiterate your brand for the people who matter most to your organization's success. Well-designed artifacts echo your brand and sustain your culture by tangibly pointing out what you value and how you operate. And if I could just add, spoiler alert, we're not necessarily talking about swag here. (laughs) Well, I'm going to ask you about swag in a second before we wrap up, but explain this concept of artifacts. Again, it's not necessarily expensive, but it requires some, some thought. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think in the book, we give a couple big uh, examples, and there's different types of artifacts um, mm-hmm. that we outline in the book. But uh, Keep, which is a CRM software company here in Phoenix, they have a football f- uh, astroturf painted with the line, the, the yard marks in a, in a field gold post. And they have that because one of their values is to leave it all in the field. And so they host their staff meetings on that turf as a way to remind people to leave everything on the field. And so the point of the artifacts, whether they're huge, you know, physical uh, installations like a football field in your office complex, or it could be something small, like um, one of the things that we do for our clients a lot of times is make a deck of cards, but instead of, you know, actual playing cards, they're reminders about the brand or how to interact with the customers or design thinking toolkits or their brand values or the brand promise, you know, different things that they can just reach in and look at and, and flip through um, that remind them about the brand. So there, there, there are different tactile things that point back to the brand and the way that you want your, your team to be able to operate again so that that brand promise is fulfilled in the work that they're doing. So it could be really anything, you know, from the physical space to something physical that you you give them, like a deck of cards. We do talk a little bit about swag, but I, I just, most corporate swag is so poorly designed. So let's talk about the swag. <laughs> I can't resist because everybody loves the swag, right? That's right. You yeah. write, anyone can make swag. Select a pin, keychain or mug, something that doesn't cost too much. Then get a designer to slap a logo on it and call it good. Most organizations approach swag this way. Sometimes this produces an object people love. It may even articulate something about your brand, but most of the time, swag falls flat. So what do you mean when you write that one rule for creating artifacts is to design your swag? Meaning, again, don't just slap logo on your stuff. Right. Intentionally design it. And sometimes this could be part of, it could be part of an experience. It could be something, again, you want to point back to the brand. So, um, you know, at our agency, we, we tend to work mainly with cause-driven, purpose-driven organizations that are in, in transition. And so we made enamel pins for everyone that say, do more good, because we want people to remember that's kind of the focus of our agency. Another example of this is what we do at Historic is we have, we call staff camp. We bring everyone together twice a year and we design patches for staff camp. And so you can, you know, depending on how long you've been with Historic, you could have a bunch of different patches and they're all designed differently. And they're not, again, it's not just the logo, right? So it's, you know, they look different um, for each one. I'm actually more <laughs> on the the line of 
if you have to put your logo on something, then most people probably won't wear it or use it. (laughs) And so you have to create different things. Um, We've done bandanas. Stickers are great because if you have a phrase or statement that's catchy around one of your brand principles or or, or the brand, um, making a sticker that people can put on their water bottle or the laptop is a reminder because they'll see it every day. But generally, the logo isn't always that, right? The logo isn't always a reminder of their brand. And you know, notice in the book, we don't actually really talk about logos that much. What we want to do is create this, this stirring in somebody uh, that gets them to behave a, the way, a specific way that imp- moves your brand forward versus just like, oh, yeah, I work at Carvana. Cool. <laughs> right. right? That's not. Yeah, that's great. Now, I just should add that uh, if anyone would like a marketing book podcast sticker, just let me know. And I'll, you know, you can put it on your water bottle or your laptop. And studies have shown that when you have a marketing book podcast sticker that's visible to your coworkers, they think you're smart and actually more attractive. So anyway, it's science. It's science. So don't don't argue with me. I'll fight you on this, uh, Mark Miller. So, Mark, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That people are the embodiment of your brand. And eventually, like we said earlier, it will catch up with you when they're not. And so spend the time. That's guaranteed. <laughs> That's guaranteed. So uh, hopefully it's not like Enron, but you know, spend the time, think about these things. Again, the book is a great resource. We have all the tools um, that you can download as well that we use with our clients to help do some of this work. Yes, very generous. And we're going to include links there. Your comment also brings to mind yet another book that was on the show a few years ago called Unbranding by Allison and Scott Stratton. And it was a hundred chapters, very short chapters. uh, And they're very talented writers, very funny folks too. And one of the things in the books that, that I remember most is that they said, your most important branding department in your company is human resources. <laughs> it's right. it's not marketing. It's about the kind of talent you're attracting and how you're treating them and training them. And again, that goes even beyond HR. But yeah, very well said. What's uh, one thing a listener could do today just to put a toe in the water? The Put the toe in the water, which is probably the biggest impact as well is going to be, you know, taking your existing values and writing them down as what the expectation for behavior is. What is the one sentence that would describe how you want somebody to behave, you know, in that, in that vein of chip paint or giving up your, your airline upgrade to Mm -hmm. the lesser, you know, less lower ranked employee. What is that, you know, write those out and send them through your, your organization and see what kind of changes happen just from that. Great idea. Great idea. It sounds real simple, but it, again, like some of these things, it requires doing something that I hate having to do, which is <clears throat> to think. So looking back, what books have most inspired your working career, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Marty Newmeyer has a ton of books that I've uh, read over the years. Um, Scramble probably ha- has been the one that has been the most influential um, because it as an agency, we've actually redefined how we engage with clients and we do stuff that most agencies won't do. So we have something called live design where we design logos and branding and, and different things in person or over zoom with the client 
in real time uh, that a lot of you know designers don't like doing. But um, so that's really influenced how we operate and, and try to you know take away the pretentiousness, if you will, from creativity. Oh, and trust me, it's there. <laughs> yeah, right. It is. Yeah, it does require us hiring a specific type of designer to be able yeah, to pull that sure. off. But, but, um, a few other ones that are more like business related. One that was in the book that we mentioned, uh, "Brave New Work" by Aaron Dignan. Um, no rules, rules by Reed Hastings is a is a great read. Um, and the business of expertise by David C. Baker. Oh, I had uh, him on the show a couple of years ago to interview him about yeah. that. Yeah, that is great. Yeah. A tremendous book. Um, I just really had an impact on. Uh, me and uh, and the company. So, yeah. yeah, very great recommendation. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable to make it easy for everyone, uh, including all the books that you've mentioned, your site, your book website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And to the listener, if you could do me a big favor, I would really, I'm, and, and again, here, get ready for it, folks. I'm not asking for a five-star review on iTunes, although, you know, yeah, some stickers will come your way. I'm not asking you to send me a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, although some have done it. <clears throat> so what I want you to do is reach out to Mark Miller on LinkedIn or Twitter or go to some of the websites or send him an email. Thank him for being a guest. Congratulate him on the book and ask him a question. These guests on the Marketing Podcast just love hearing from listeners, and I get emails all the time saying, man, I, can't, I, I love hearing from your, from your uh, listeners. They're asking me so many interesting questions, and you know, you're able to make other book recommendations. So consider this the beginning of the, of the conversation. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast and your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now as you're listening to it and click on the show notes link. Final quote. Sorry, Mark, I couldn't resist. From page 180, how your brand operates on the inside matters more than how it looks on the outside. Your organization's internal culture shapes everything your employees do, and it determines whether they consistently deliver on your brand promise to differentiate you from the competition, attract more customers, and turn them into raving fans and loyal followers. Your culture either ignites your momentum and propels your brand forward, or it falls short of your promise, discredits your marketing, and devours your brand. At the end of the day, your culture is your strategy for success, and it affects your bottom line more than any other dimension of your brand. The book is Culture Built My Brand, The Secret to Winning More Customers Through Company Culture. The authors are Mark Miller and Ted Vaughn. Mark, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 